Hello and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ludwig Lin. Today, I will be speaking with Anne Parker, MD, about the article Post-Traumatic Stress Disorder in Critical Illness Survivors, a Meta-Analysis, published in Critical Care Medicine. Dr. Parker is a fellow in the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine and is part of the Outcomes After Critical Illness and Surgery, i.e. OASIS group, at Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore, Maryland. Dr. Parker, thank you so much for joining us today. And I think this is such an important topic, so I really am happy that we can discuss this for the Society of Critical Care Medicine audience. Maybe we could start by having you define for us PTSD and its relevance in the field of critical care medicine. Great. Thanks, Dr. Lana. I'm really excited to be here, and thank you for the invitation. So post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD, is a mental health disorder triggered by experiencing or witnessing a traumatic event. And so that event is re-experienced in the form of intrusive memories or nightmares. And this can lead to changes in mood and avoidance of situations that remind the individual of that traumatic event. So many people have these symptoms immediately following a traumatic event. That isn't unusual. However, if the symptoms occur for less than one month, we tend to call them acute stress symptoms. If they last for more than a month, we start to worry about PTSD. And so I think what comes to mind for most people when they hear the term PTSD is the experiences of combat veterans or people who have been physically assaulted, maybe. And I think it's well accepted at this point that PTSD in these contexts can cause serious problems with relationships and day-to-day functioning. However, PTSD isn't something that is generally on the radar for people when they think about someone surviving a critical illness. But when you think about it, just by virtue of being critically ill and requiring treatment in the ICU, these patients are meeting that first criteria for PTSD, right? So they're experiencing a life-threatening event. And what physicians have noticed over time is that patients who have survived a critical illness often describe really terrifying experiences during their ICU stay. And there's been this growing body of literature describing PTSD in ICU survivors. So some prior reviews that summarize such literature included about 15 studies. But in the six or seven years since those studies were published, the number of studies on this topic has more than doubled demonstrating the growing recognition of PTSD as a complication of critical illness and associated ICU care. So we realized that with this growing body of literature, there was an opportunity to maybe better summarize and bring up to date the literature on PTSD among ICU survivors. So this gave us an estimate to try and pull these prevalence estimates together from the various studies and provide kind of an overall pooled estimate of the prevalence of PTSD among ICU survivors, and also to summarize the risk factors and potential prevention and treatment strategies for PTSD among survivors of critical illness. Right. Before we start delving into the methodology of your paper, maybe I could ask you a few more questions about PTSD and its relevance in critical care. So, obviously, it is something that does occur in this patient population. What are the effects of PTSD on this pool of patients who have survived critical illness? What are the effects on their quality of life? What is the effect, if any, on their functional capacity and their psychological well-being? Right. 
So, you know, when you ask individual patients, some of the reports that I've heard are people describing memories of feeling as if they were being assaulted or that the nurses and clinicians were out to get them or were standing in the hall kind of talking about them and planning and plotting against them. People describe things like seeing blood pouring down the walls or floating faces. And and these memories really stick with patients well after their ICU stay. And what we've seen in prior studies and in reviews that were done many years ago is that these PTSD symptoms are associated with a worse overall health-related quality of life. And so people that have more PTSD symptoms do seem to have a worse quality of life overall. Has anybody looked at the economic effects of having PTSD, you know, patients functioning after their critical illness event? So that has not been formally studied to my knowledge, looking specifically at you know, healthcare utilization in the setting of increasing PTSD symptoms. But I I think it's reasonable to hypothesize, and I've heard subjectively from patients that they become, you know, especially patients showing substantial PTSD symptoms after their ICU stay, something like the common cold can cause a lot of anxiety and can lead them to go back to the emergency room or to see their physician when they maybe previously would not have, but they have this intense fear of experiencing that event again. But to my knowledge, no studies have actually looked into the specific impact of, you know, increasing PTSD symptoms on healthcare resource utilization. It looks like something that would be interesting to follow up on. Well, on that note, let's go back to this study and let's talk about what your group did. So it's a meta-analysis, right? And maybe I can just have you describe for us your methodology. Sure. So we performed a systematic review that included 40 studies on 36 unique cohorts, and that was an overall more than about 3,000 patients. And follow-up time ranged from about one month to three years after ICU discharge. So we excluded studies that focused primarily on patients in a trauma ICU, And the idea there was that we really wanted to isolate the ICU experience as the exposure leading to PTSD symptoms, as opposed to, for example, a car crash leading to PTSD symptoms. And so studies that had more than 50% of their patients coming from a trauma ICU were excluded. Along the same lines, we excluded studies that focused primarily on a neurologic ICU. So if more than 50% of the patients were coming from a neurologic ICU, We excluded those as well, and the idea here was that neurologic injury might confound the association between the ICU experience and subsequent PTSD. We also focused on patients that were assessed at home more than one month after ICU discharge. So if studies included primarily patients that were evaluated less than one month after ICU discharge, they were excluded as well. And again, the idea here is that you can't really even begin to diagnose PTSD or substantial PTSD symptoms until at least one month has passed since the traumatic event. And then finally, we included studies that used a validated PTSD instrument. And so as long as the PTSD instrument or symptom checklist that was used by the study had been validated in a population looking at PTSD symptoms, that study could be included. Now, among the instruments used, only two of them have actually been validated specifically in an ICU population, to my knowledge. 
And those two instruments are the post-traumatic symptom checklist 10-question version and the impact of event scale revised. So among all of the instruments used in the studies that were included in the review, those were the only two that have actually been previously validated in an ICU population. So we were also interested specifically in looking at the frequency of substantial PTSD symptoms. And the overall range of these symptoms was about 10 to 60%. And so I think to put this into context, the range, for example, of PTSD symptoms among those directly involved in the World Trade Center attacks, so I think a traumatic event that we're all relatively familiar with, was about 10 to 25% in some published studies. So this range of 10 to 60% that we found in the systematic review really does fall in line with the range that we found among other traumatic experiences. And so two of the studies actually measured PTSD symptoms by clinician interview. So they actually sat down with someone who was trained to administer a clinician um, mental health interview and diagnosed PTSD in that manner. And so in those two studies, the range of PTSD symptoms was about 10 to 32%. So that range narrowed a bit more. And we really wanted to try and summarize these estimates and narrow the range a bit further. So we performed a meta-analysis of studies using the impact of event scale. And the reason that we chose to include studies that use this particular instrument is really because it was the most common instrument used among all of the studies. And so it gave us the richest amount of data to try to pull these estimates and provide an overall prevalence. So looking at about one to six months after ICU discharge, we included six studies that included a total of about 450 patients. And from our meta-analysis, we found a pooled prevalence estimate of 25% using an impact of event scale cutoff of 35 which is very conservative. So at one to six months after ICU discharge, using this very conservative cutoff on this particular symptom checklist, we found that a quarter of patients were experiencing substantial PTSD symptoms. And then we also looked in the seven to 12 month period after ICU discharge, and using that same cutoff on the impact of event scale, we found that 17%, so almost a fifth of patients had substantial PTSD symptoms. So while the frequency of symptoms was slightly lower at 12 versus six months, they were still substantial. So we're looking at about a quarter to, a fifth to a quarter of patients having substantial PTSD symptoms in the year following ICU discharge. And if you look at survivors of other traumatic events, this is really in line with survivors of, for example, war or the World Trade Center attacks or physical assaults. So PTSD symptoms among ICU survivors is really strikingly common, and I think much more common than people probably previously thought. That's an incredible piece of data. And you also looked at the various factors that did and did not become associated with PTSD. Is that correct? That's correct, yes. So we looked across all of the studies and summarize the risk factors discussed in each of the studies. And we were managed to summarize overall some specific factors that were associated with increasing PTSD symptoms or a higher risk of PTSD symptoms 
after ICU discharge. So in particular, some patient-specific factors included other psychological symptoms prior to ICU admission. So studies that documented whether patients had previous psychiatric history or disease, or for example, specifically asked patients, did you see a physician for mental health before the ICU, found that patients who had substantial anxiety, depression symptoms, or who had seen a mental health provider before their ICU stay were more likely to have substantial PTSD symptoms after their ICU discharge. And so I think, again, that's in line with what we know from the general PTSD literature, that people who have pre-existing psychiatric comorbidity are more likely to have PTSD symptoms following a traumatic event. We also found some specific ICU-related factors that seem to be associated with increasing PTSD symptoms. And so one in particular was the use of sedative medications in the ICU, and in particular benzodiazepines. And so we think, and again, no study has particularly found this association, but one hypothesis is that benzodiazepines may be a marker for vulnerable patients. So patients who tend to be more anxious at baseline may be more likely to get more benzodiazepines and also may be more likely to subsequently develop PTSD symptoms after critical illness. Or benzodiazepines may, in a way, contribute to delirium, which may also predispose to PTSD symptoms. And now, again, there isn't a study that is has particularly drawn that link between delirium and PTSD symptoms. And I think that's difficult to do. For example, in one of our studies that looks specifically at whether or not patients were delirious and whether or not that delirium predicted subsequent PTSD symptoms, there was no definite association found. However, over, I think, 80% of patients were delirious at some point during their ICU stay, making it very difficult to try to find a difference between those two groups because of the sample size of non-delirious patients being so small. So we still hypothesize that it's possible that medications like benzodiazepines may contribute to delirium, which then may subsequently contribute to further PTSD symptoms. I just wanted to expand on that particular topic a little bit more, the use of sedatives and delirium. For example, the possibility that it's also influencing memory formation since benzodiazepines can also have amnestic effects on patients. And I was wondering if you had any thoughts on that. So, for example, do sedatives that interfere with memory formation actually lead to more PTSD because it winds up sort of forcing these patients to start getting their memories confused about their ICU experience? Or is the opposite true? Because you guys haven't mentioned it yet, I don't think, but you did find that early memories of frightening ICU experiences actually contributed to an increased likelihood of developing PTSD. Right, exactly. And so I think you hit the nail on the head there, that patients who are describing these very frightening early post-ICU memories of, of their previous ICU experiences, similar to what I mentioned before, so things like seeing blood pouring down the walls or thinking they were being assaulted by, you know, people who are trying to, to place a central line or even just a Foley catheter, thinking that their clinicians were really plotting against them, 
these people tended to have more PTSD symptoms than individuals who did not report such memories. And I think that you're right in saying that the issue here might be the this idea of memory formation. So individuals who are delirious during their ICU stay from whatever cause, so certainly benzodiazepines might contribute, but so might sepsis or other disease states, they tend to not be able to process the memories of, of the actual experiences of what is going on in the ICU. So what's happening to them on a day-to-day basis that, you know, they had a central line placed and they were started on dialysis. And so in a way, they're sort of filling in these gaps as they wake up and are able to start trying to recall what was happening during their ICU stay. Were there any studies that separated out, for example, propofol versus benzodiazepines versus dexmedetomidine? Or is that too much information to glean from these studies that you looked at? So among the studies looking at sedative use in the ICU and subsequent PTSD symptoms, I think the association between benzodiazepines and subsequent PTSD symptoms was slightly stronger than any association that could be found between, say, opiate medications or propofol and subsequent PTSD symptoms. And so there seems to be something that may be particularly unique to benzodiazepines as a sedative in the ICU. Now, I think it's interesting to point out that in one longitudinal study that was not included in our systematic review because it focused on a specific subpopulation of ICU survivors, namely those with ARDS, they found that high-dose opiates were associated with greater PTSD symptoms while the duration of exposure to opiates was associated with less PTSD symptoms. And so the idea here, the hypothesis, is that while sufficient pain control may protect against subsequent PTSD symptoms, maybe through um, less pain and more comfort, that excessive opiate dosing may contribute to sedation and subsequent PTSD symptoms. So if For example, in the setting of opiates, if individuals are getting just enough opiate for pain control that they're comfortable and they're able to kind of communicate better, potentially through better comfort, they may be experiencing less PTSD symptoms. But if they're getting a very high dose of opiate, enough to really sedate them, they may actually, those patients may be more vulnerable to subsequent PTSD symptoms. There's one other portion about sedation that I'd like to point out that I think is important. And that is that we already know that there are a lot of benefits to interruption of sedation in the ICU. So spontaneous breathing trials and daily sedation breaks and limiting sedation has been associated with being able to get patients mobilized earlier, less days on the ventilator, fewer ICU days. And actually, in the studies that were included in the systematic review that looked at daily sedation breaks or reduced sedation or a no sedation protocol, I think importantly, those studies did not find any increased PTSD symptoms. So those studies did not find that if patients were awake longer in the ICU, if they had less sedation, they were not developing more PTSD symptoms. And I think that's important to point out because a lot of the traditional thinking in the ICU is that if patients are awake to kind of experience 
and really know what's happening to them, that they may be more frightened and be more likely to develop PTSD symptoms. But we're actually seeing the opposite, that if patients are awake and communicative and are really able to process in the moment what is happening to them, that they're actually less likely to develop PTSD symptoms. Thank you for pointing that out. I think that is extremely important for us to know because, like you said, we are all finally moving toward this paradigm of decreasing the amount of sedation for patients and decreasing delirium that way. And it's good to know that these maneuvers, at the very least, do not increase the incidence of PTSD. That's an accurate summary of what you just said, right, Dr. Parker? Right. So I think an important thing to point out is that PTSD symptoms seem to occur across a variety of patients, regardless of severity of illness, ICU length of stay, or ICU admission diagnosis. So these are some of the factors that we traditionally think about when we talk about physical complications of ICU stay. So we tend to think that people that are in the ICU longer, that are on mechanical ventilation longer, that have greater severity of illness, or particular diagnoses tend to have more physical complications. However, if we focus really on these factors, we are missing the boat when it comes to post-traumatic stress disorder in ICU survivors because very consistently across studies that looked at severity of illness, length of stay, and admission diagnosis, these factors were not associated with subsequent PTSD symptoms. What about factors that decrease the amount of PTSD? Right. So there have been few studies that have actually looked at potential prevention or treatment strategies. And one potential intervention that has been more consistently shown to reduce PTSD symptoms is the ICU diary. And so in our systematic review, two studies particularly looked at the ICU diary and whether this was associated with reduced PTSD symptoms after ICU discharge. And so the idea of the ICU diary is that both medical staff and the patient's family keep a daily diary of what is happening with the patient in the ICU. So for example, today you were started on dialysis or you had to be intubated because of respiratory problems. And these diaries can even include photos, diagrams. They can include some information about what is happening at home while the patient is in the ICU. So there's been a wedding, somebody's had a child, to try to help kind of orient what's happening both in the hospital and out of the hospital. And so the two studies, one a randomized controlled trial and the other a pre-post study, both done in Europe, found that patients who were given a diary, who had a diary kept and were given their diary after they awoke in the ICU, were less likely to have PTSD symptoms than patients who did not have a diary to review after their critical illness. And I think it's interesting that these studies were conducted in the United Kingdom and in France, and in certain parts of Europe, the ICU diary is almost standard of care. However, I am not aware of any hospitals in the United States that actually use an ICU diary as part of standard care in the ICU. That's a fascinating concept. I certainly had not heard of it before. Do they utilize professional psychologists or therapists or social workers to debrief and reconcile the diary afterwards? 
or do the patients go through the diaries at their own pace? So in at least one of the studies, the patients went through the diary at their own pace. And the other study, the patients could go through the diary at their own pace, but I think they also had the option of reviewing the diary with a clinician in a post-ICU clinic, for example. Oh, okay. I would love to see us in America explore that more, for sure. So, I think this has been an incredible conversation about PTSD, its importance, and the various risk factors that do increase the chances of developing in a particular patient. Based on your findings, do you have any recommendations for us as clinicians in terms of good ICU care to try to minimize the chances of this happening to our patients? Sure. So I think the first thing is really recognition. So to recognize that PTSD symptoms are very common among ICU survivors. So to first recognize the problem. And I think as we've summarized in this systematic review, there are some things that we can do to try to reduce PTSD symptoms at this point. And one is to really try to limit sedation. And although studies did not focus particularly on whether or not early mobility, for example, getting patients up and moving earlier is associated with PTSD symptoms in any way, I think it's reasonable that if we are able to reduce the amount of sedation that patients are getting in the ICU and engage them in their care, that it's reasonable to think that might reduce PTSD symptoms down the line. And I think this idea of the ICU diary is really fascinating, and it's something that is fairly easy to do, and I think it definitely warrants further evaluation and consideration as part of care, particularly in North America where it isn't used very frequently. Yes. Well, thank you so much for agreeing to talk to us about your paper. It's a wonderful piece of work, and I think it really highlights a part of ICU care that we do need to think more about. So thank you. And thank you all for joining us today. This concludes another edition of the iCritical Care podcast. Please check out our website at www.sccm.org backslash iCriticalCare for more information. For the iCritical Care podcast, I am Dr. Ludwig Lin. Mark your calendar to attend the 45th Critical Care Congress to be held February 20th through 24th, 2016 in Orlando, Florida, USA. This five-day event will bring together more than 6,000 members of the critical care community from around the world and will offer opportunities to share creative and stimulating ideas, make valuable connections, and obtain inspired perspectives. Visit www.sccm.org congress to register and for more information. Ludwig Lynn, M.D. is an intensivist and anesthesiologist at Summit Altibates Medical Center in the Bay Area in Northern California and is a consulting professor at Stanford University, where he teaches a seminar on the psychosocial and economic ramifications of critical illness. Dr. Lin did his medical training, anesthesia residency, and critical care medicine fellowship at the University of California, San Francisco. He has served as faculty at both Stanford University as well as the University of California, San Francisco, where he was a professor and the medical director of critical care at San Francisco General Hospital. He has interests in patient-family communication as well as education. Being a SCCM podcast host reminds Dr. Lin of his undergraduate days as a news broadcaster for his college radio station, KZSU. 
The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.